Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast in association with Castelli. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined as ever by Mr. James Fender. James, how are you? My obligatory question of how your spirits are during this second lockdown that you're leaving in a few days and I'm not because I'm in tier three with half of the country. Well, I mean, I was nearly in tier three. I'm in Portsmouth. Portsmouth was on the cusp, so I'm told, terrible number of cases. Um, yeah, Kent's really gone through the roof. What's going on? There was something on the news about a, one of the boroughs that had like the lowest rates and then suddenly it was just like straight up. You know, not to point fingers, but it, I'm going to point a finger at Swale, uh, which is a part of Kent, which has got particularly high infection rates among the highest in the country. And um, as an act of solidarity, they decided to put the entirety of the county into tier three restrictions, which is a shame, but I guess it will be reviewed in two weeks time. And it doesn't affect my ability to cycle outside or podcast. So I can't moan, can I, James? No, exactly. And I shouldn't moan because now I can book that table for one that I've been looking so forward to at a, at a, at a pub that serves substantial food. How much food do you think is going to be wasted? What counts as substantial? I want to go drinking with my buddies. And so I've got to go to a place serving substantial food. Yeah. Which, I don't know, is a cold sandwich a substantial food? Does it have to be a warm sandwich? Is that a snack? Well, today, today, um, I think it's Justice Secretary, no, Environment Secretary George Eustace said that a Scotch egg would suffice. Really? On LBC. Well, so. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, some of the prices of Scotch eggs in London, they better bloody suffice. I've seen Scotch eggs for £7.50. I'm not surprised. But they're normally with like venison meat as opposed to just your run of the mill pork, pork luncheon or whatever they use normally in a Scotch egg. So. That's very true. You've got something in there. I mean, sometimes there's even like a duck cell, like in a, a Wellington. Wow. I mean, that's the perfect uh, sort of tangent away from cycling to start a cycling podcast is the discussion of Scotch eggs. But you say that, but along with the pork pie, honestly, I've spoken to cycling nutritionists, just to bring it back. Two of the best foods for endurance cyclists is the Scotch egg and the pork pie. It's very dense. Don't don't fall apart much in your pocket. Obviously, a Scotch egg you got to be a little bit careful with. What with the egg content and salmonella, but uh, yeah, they're great endurance foods. Great endurance foods. And you can use the gelatin in a pork pie to lube your chain. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you absolutely <laughs> can. You can just get the edge. You hold the pork pie in your left hand. And you turn the cranks when you're right, and you just bury, bury it. The, yeah, bury the the chain into the pie, and then you've cut your pie in half so you and your friend can have a pie half each. So it writes itself. You can't do the same with a Scotch egg unless it's particularly yolky. Fair enough. Uh, let's move on to something we like and something we don't like, James. So, James, in the last two weeks, has something caught your eye that you like in cycling at all? It's not just caught my eye, Joe. It's completely turned my head. I am now cheat- I'm cheating on my favourite bike. Wow. Can I have a guess at that favourite bike? Please do. Is it your Chinelli... Uh, laser. It is. Chenny laser with a little pinky finger at the corner of your mouth as you say it. It's a carbon uh, replica, I suppose. But anyway, down in Portsmouth, I've been meeting up and having a little tete-a-tete with a specialised Athos, mm. which is specialised, super light, as you pointed out to me the other day, super light, uber expensive climber's bike that everyone was building back in 2012. Yeah, <laughs> about that. So that new bike, after years of Specialized telling us that Aero is 
it's all about being aero optimized and light and that tubes need to be cam tailed and x y and z they've released a bike that everyone released back in 2000 and well 2012 eight years ago using technologies that have existed for almost a decade yes but i mean you say that and when i first kind of when you look at it that's what you think so basically if any any listeners haven't seen it it's effectively it's just a round tubed frame it's black it says s works on it somewhere it's very very scantily clad just to keep the weight down so it's really nondescript um it's a compact frame as well a bit like those giant tcrs so that again helps it save weight but it's a disc brake bike it's in production uh well the frame weighs 585 grams for a size 56 and the fork is supposedly around 270 and it's a disc bike so that is hitting rim brake bike figures for a disc frame and it's done that through using round tubes because round tubes are basically per weight ratio stiffness to weight they are just the stiffest to weightiest or lighty weightiest things going um as soon as you start messing with a round shape you're adding material in order to shore it up uh in a stiffness uh in in terms of stiffness in certain directions which is why Lots of older um, aero frames were incredibly narrow, um, incredibly harsh up your backside, and then incredibly bendy in the sprints because, you know, if you smack a ruler on its edge on the table, it doesn't really do much bending. But if you take that same ruler and you bend it horizontally, it does a lot of bending, and that's what an early aero frame is. The thing that genuinely makes this bike light is its frame, whereas other bikes we see are light because of their parts. So it's just a fantastic thing to climb when it literally does feel like there's a little winch like a really small little hand winch being like winched by a very small person the downside of it is it costs do you want to guess how much it costs oh well it's a brand new bike so that immediately means that it's over 10 grand um i'm gonna say 11.999 well you're not far off Overrated it slightly. It's eleven and a half, which to me does sound a little cheap. So I might be going for the thirteen thousand pound founders edition, of Ooh. which there'll be three hundred units made, which does come in allegedly at five point nine kilos, which is where the headlines came from. Um, and for that, you do actually get an integrated bar as opposed to a standard stem and a standard set of bars. Uh, you get a slightly lighter saddle, um, and you get some tires that aren't tamble. So actually, I say you're spending fifteen hundred quid to make get a bike that looks worse. So maybe it's, yeah, 300 grams lighter, but it doesn't look as good, mate, because it hasn't got tamils, because, yeah. And we all know that looking good is the key to being fast, so. So, yeah, that's that's me, mate. What are you, what are you liking over there in uh, your tier three castle? So there's two things that I'm a big fan of at the moment. My first one is pretty practical, actually, and they're a set of lights from C-Sense. So they're called the C-Sense Icon 2 lights. They're a front and a rear light. They're not your sort of, like, heavy duty commuter lights you're not going to be using them to get to and from work in the pitch black they're, they're more like daylights or just dusky lights i've been using the rear one on for all of my rides in winter just because there's that little bit of low light bit of fog at the weekend but what's really clever about them is that they're all bluetooth connected to my phone Ooh. so what that means is that i can not only track how much battery is left on the both lights I can set the, um, not frequency, what is it, the mode, the mode I'd like to use. Um, but also the best thing about them is that once, when you begin to break, the rear light actually, instead of just flashing, it becomes a solid color and gets lighter like a, 
a brake light on a car, um, which is more apparently alerts you better to, to traffic. I mean, I haven't had anyone crash into the back of me yet. Wow. So they're clearly doing quite well. I also went out, I went out for a ride with my dad at the weekend and he noticed it as we were riding behind me. We was heading down a descent. I broke, I deaccelerated, and he saw, he noticed the light change when I did so. And he sort of said, oh, that's clever. So I like that. So that, so if we asked Paul Robinson what he would like, he would also say, I like my son's lights. I mean, if you cut, if your lights aren't bringing joy to those that you're riding with, you've bought the wrong lights. Exactly. And the other good, the other funny thing about them is, is that when you download the app after said ride, you can go on to the, the C-Sense app and you can log on the route that you just did parts of roads that were poorly surfaced or there was poor infrastructure or you felt like it was a little bit dangerous as a cyclist with the concept being that C-Sense will then send them off to the local council and they will sort the problem. Now, that's pretty pie in the sky and convoluted. And I don't think that the Seven Oaks Council are going to resurface Ide Hill or Troy's Hill because of a, a light company getting in contact with them. But, you know, it's a novel idea. They're, all try- they're trying to do the right thing with it. And you can't knock them for trying. Well, that's, that's fantastic. You just reminded me, actually, something I don't like. I'm just going to go jump straight to that before I even bother asking about your second thing. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's bike lanes and councils and the shortest lived bike lane scheme, I think, in the history of the UK has uh, just happened before my very eyes in Portsmouth. It probably didn't last more than four weeks right. for them to take one of the more arterial roads, completely take out all of the parking and delivery spaces along it by putting in putting in bike lanes, complete with bollards. And then, lo and behold, all of the... Uh, all of the petitions went around and then the other day they came out and just like took it all out <laughs> and that's it that's it I, I was probably the only person in Portsmouth to ride down that, the, that but this is a wider problem because on the one show not too long ago uh they visited Liverpool and the guy in charge of putting out all the temporary bike lanes in Liverpool during the pandemic was a former Brookside actor I don't know don't know why don't know why he was doing that now but as they were standing there filming the VT about how, you know, it would make it a greener city and people could transport better, etc., etc. Sort of a, a Scouse white van driver drove past and just sort of shouted like, fucking get rid of those bike lanes. And, <laughs> <laughs> like, and the one show thought, oh yeah, we'll leave that in. Christina Beachy, what are you doing? I mean, uh, they, they did leave it in because, you know, there's a worldwide conspiracy against us cyclists, but let's not go down that route. Um, <laughs> Um, but that's a nice thing you don't like. Uh, a thing I don't like, James, is... Well, it's a thing that I love and I'm so happy for, but I'm I'm just annoyed is that Adidas have got back into the cycling shoe game. So 15 years have passed since the most iconic shoemaker in cycling. One of the most iconic shoemakers in the world sort of left our sport. You know, People forget, don't forget, Adidas were the shoe of choice for the greatest cyclist of all time, Eddie Merckx. He won every single great race in the sport on a, in a set of Adidas shoes. Um, they then were associated with sort of Jan Ulrich in the 90s. But then when it did, sort of transpired that the Germans had been very naughty in sort of becoming successful cyclists, the, the brand kind of pulled out of the sport and sort of 
left quite quietly. Well, they're back and they've just released something called the road cycling shoe that lots of people got really excited for, myself included. It's a look, lovely looking shoe. It's very classic, just your black, three white stripes lace up. So I'm a big fan. But I have a couple of gripes to pick with them. And those are, one, the stripes are not on the inside of the shoe. They're only on the outside. So that looks like a bit of a bodge job to me. I hope it's not. I am speaking to the people behind this new shoe range soon. And I will pose that question to them. Please do. And secondly, from what I'm seeing... I don't know how much development's gone into the shoe. We are getting a set in the next week or so, and I will like to look at them. But from what I've seen from the press releases, from the photos, I don't know if this has just been a kind... It looks a little bit like they've rushed it out. That's what I want to say. That's what I'm going to say. Uh, you know, they don't come with a carbon sole. Ooh, There's, come on. Come on now. How much yeah, do they cost? In, uh, only, I said, only £130 which is pretty run-of-the-mill for cycling shoes. If Adidas released a set of cycling shoes that were 250, I don't think people would have really bat an eyelid. That's an interesting one. Not having a carbon sole, I think, is a big uh, oversight. But, you know, who's to say they're just not stiff enough as they are? And the originals obviously wouldn't have had carbon soles. I think the originals were made with a kind of mixture of MDF and cardboard, and they were hard-nailed with carpet tacks into the leather. I think that's how they made them. Yeah. Yeah. So I put this for you. Which uh which man and I'll also let you have this if you can tell me the name of the cycling team, unites Greg LeMond with Adidas and how? I'm stumped, you're gonna have to tell me. It is the French entrepreneur Bernard Tappy or Bernard Tapi as you probably how you say it. I don't know. Uh, but he was, he's a bit like um, you know, another president person in the news at the moment, Philip Green. He is a kind of administrative asset stripper specialist. And um, Adidas, strangely, was floundering in the 90s and uh, Tappy bought it and turned it around. Uh, and he was the guy who owned the Lavi Claire team, which Le Monde rode for famously. And he was the man, they say, gave cycling its first million dollar contract, which is how he got Le Monde into La Vie Claire with uh, with a million pounds. So he's he's the guy. He's the link. Pop quiz hotshot. That's your answer for your pub quiz. Interesting. Okay, well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm going to withhold judgment on the shoes until I see a set. Um, shall we get on to the episode at hand? Why not? Why not? It's a good one. Okay. It's a good one because who have we got, Joseph? It is a really good one. So on the 12th of December... Britain's Alex Dowsett was set to be taken back to the Manchester Velodrome in order to attempt to regain the hour record five years after he set it and five years on, it's now held by Victor Campanets, the Belgian cyclist. It was all looking good. He was preparing well. He was hitting the numbers and then the inevitable happened in 2020. He caught COVID. Um... So James and I, we caught up with Alex a few days ago to sort of talk to him about catching COVID, how he had to postpone, why he had to postpone the hour, the obvious being that he caught COVID, uh, why he was so certain that he was going to recapture the record. And we also just chatted to him about that sort of memorable Giro d'Italia win he had back in October and how it helped him stay in cycling's world tour. As James said, it's a really good interview. So we're going to roll it in now. 
So, Alex, is it slightly ironic you're sitting here having just done a whole calendar's worth of racing in 70 days and travelled around the world and met people from dozens of countries and yet you're in Essex and you have COVID? How, how did that happen? Yeah, I feel like I've been at the centre of every sort of COVID scandal going this year um, and then I catch it all by myself seemingly in isolation out in Essex taking all the precautions possible so um, yeah sod's law really you couldn't even you didn't even catch it it's not even like you got to go into a Nando's because everything's been shut so it wasn't even like you're like oh you know what I actually it's because I went to Nando's and I caught it in there it's so it's, it's, it's it must be so gutting and I do feel for you there so yeah like you say it's uh, it's 2020 so Anything can happen, I guess. Expect the worst and anything else is a bonus. But the hour record will happen eventually for next year, we hope. Yes, very much a postponement rather than a cancellation. Obviously, this canned hour record, when did you decide like to take it on? Was it pre or post zero? Because obviously there was like the, the uncertainty around the, uh, the the contract situation. And so did you just go, oh, you know what? This is a great opportunity for me to do something that I've always wanted to do since 2015. And also it's a good shop window thing if you do get the outer record, isn't it? It's, a... it's never about the shop window, I would say. It's a, there's probably a few factors. Um, one of them was uh, been putting it off since March, the, my, since my last attempt. Um, it's very easy to not do an attempt. It's very easy to just go, we'll just do it next year. Maybe we'll try and do it next year and... Next thing you know, five years has passed. There's a lot of riders that just talk about it. Yeah, and so you have to actually do it. And it's and unless your team's organising everything, it's not easy either. It really isn't easy to get it together. When we first started, like Chanel and I mentioned it to Chanel back when lockdown started and all the racing was cancelled. I was just like, Christ, this would be a golden time to do an hour record because there's nothing else going on and it doesn't get more socially distant than an hour because you just need barely any people in the velodrome so that was back in kind of march april time where we just started um putting the feelers out and seeing what we could do in terms of sponsorship because it's not cheap either and then yeah i'd say in kind of a month ahead of month or two ahead of the hour record we ahead of the zero sorry we were really getting some solid uh, plans in place for it um you know it was a team of six people uh working on it i mean originally it was chanel and i and you know i had to actually train and work hard and and chanel being pregnant as well and it's it's a huge undertaking so we needed some few more hands on deck so yeah it's was, it was been quite a long time in the in the making which yeah which made it even even bigger shame when it um when we had to sort of postpone did you feel Earlier, because you say that's you know kind of March when it started to occur to you, you know, in off the back of 2019, or even you know as soon as your record was beaten in uh, in a few months after you did it, um, was it a few months or a few weeks? Just one month. Not yeah, even. we immediately were just like, I've got to get that back. I will do that again. When does it occur to you to go and do an hour record again? Yeah, no, it was um, to be honest, it was even before Wiggins went. I thought I want to do that again. Um, I think when I when I did it, my mind cast back to like the Graham Obrey situation where he went again the next day because all, all the UCI commissaires were still there and they still had the track. And then 
I was just like, oh, don't be silly, Alex. You got it. You've done it. Your name's on the list. Like Movi, and with Movi Star as well, I think that was certainly it was job done for them as well. And we'd succeeded. We didn't want it. Like, I, I never even brought it up because it was like, uh, it just would have been a, just an unknown, I guess. Um, even though I think deep down I was like, that was that was easier than our record should have been, and then the numbers confirmed it. I think a few the coaching staff at the time thought that the numbers were out because it was it was much lower than we had anticipated. But in hindsight, I knew it felt. I knew it felt like 360 watts. It didn't feel like 400. Um, so I think it was after that. It was just, it was, even though I had the record, there was a real element of that wasn't what I was capable of. And when you work that hard and you don't actually get it all out, it's quite, it's frustrating. It's quite disappointing. And given time again, I'd do exactly the same thing because like, we had to, we had to ride to the schedule and it wasn't unknown. So, um, and obviously hindsight is a wonderful thing but yeah i mean so i've been wanting to go again for quite a long time i mean what i'd love to do is just quietly go away and do it and say hey did this um but you can't can't be a former hour record holder or a world tour time trialist and quietly go away and do an hour record and also because the uci own the hour record um they won't let you quietly do it either of course there's nothing to stop you just going and riding around the track for an hour but you don't get the record and weirdly, I've got to say, for when you just put it like that, riding around a track for an hour, it does kind of not really sound like a spectacle, but it is so mesmerising. It's an incredible thing to watch. Like I reckon I, we definitely had it on in the office for, for various people over the years, uh, yourself included, because it's, it's just like, and again, and again, and again. What's, still, what's the numbers? What's the numbers saying? And uh, kind of how much of it to you becomes mesmeric are you aware of every little sinew just crying out stop alex stop pushing me this really hurts or do you just kind of i hate the cliche but are you just sitting in some mental zen zone where all it all clicks and you're just looking and listening for a number and seeing a board and waiting basically almost i think you've got to remember my when i did it it wasn't it was a high zone three ride so there was never any of that crying out pain or any of that. i mean that's what i was waiting for I was just holding the 17 second lap times that I needed to. And I was just, I remember thinking I got to 30 minutes and that was kind of the start of our unknown because I'd done 30 minutes in training. And I was just, I was like, oh, Thomas Decker had a bad patch from 30 to 40 minutes. I wonder if I'll have one. And I get to 40 minutes. And I'm like, oh, I didn't have one. Maybe I'll have one now. And then next thing you know, it's like 55 minutes and you're almost home safe and dry. So, yeah, I mean, so it became really enjoyable. I was uh, very open to all the feedback. I'd go around and look up at the board so you could see your average speed ticking up and how long you'd done. Obviously, I was getting, you, you're getting feedback every every lap. So you're having to take the corners sort of right each time as well. So even though it's like an hour of following the black line, there's, there's quite a lot going on. And from a spectator standpoint, I think it is that constant, that constant feedback like where I am where the rider is in relation to the previous record is is kind of the biggest one and certainly for me against Rowan's record because we paced it very different Rowan went out reasonably fast got faster and then slowed down a little bit whereas I went out steady and then stayed steady and then lifted it a little bit at the end and I think from the crowd's perspective they watched me slipping behind to a point where I was the 
equivalent of uh, a lap and three quarters behind Rowan. And then I remember at 27 minutes or 32, the gap went from getting bigger to me starting to peg back the distance to Rowan. And, and I think that's what the crowd gets excited about is the, is the time compared to the previous, previous record. I was going to say, like, the, the effort you did there was this sort of, this very considered zone free effort for, to take on Victor's distance, which is quite a, it's a big step up from what you did in 2015. Yeah. And also there was the case that Victor had what, nine months off and did it at 2000 meters above sea level, Yeah. which is, as we know in cycling is a huge benefit is doing a record like that at that altitude because of the, the aerodynamic advantages is like for you how much of a step up is that from that last hour record to put tap out not only that extra 40 watts but also know that you've got hit 55 kilometers an hour this time as opposed to 54 last time 53 53 sorry i'd have to lap myself nine times to break victor's record when you put it like that that's you don't want to put it like that, basically, do you? Yeah, I think look, I, to match Victor, I'd have to go 0.8 seconds a lap faster than I, my previous attempts. I, oh, I, the altitude thing is, yes, there's a gain. I don't think the gain's as big as uh, people say. Um, it's never something we looked into just because of going to South America during COVID was like ludicrous to even try and plan but you know with certainly for shorter events the benefit the aero benefits higher far higher because the oxygen deficit is far less significant but so victor only had to do 340 watts to go 55k but that was a very hard 340 watts for victor because of how uh, thin the air is and i might be looking at 360 at or 1800 meters to go the same distance as Victor, which for me, three, like I live at 2000 meters. I know 360 for an hour. That's not easy at all either. The good thing is you can model everything. Like I know, we know what my CDA is roughly. Um, it kind of depends who's testing you. You can model it with good and bad air pressure. And we're looking at like somewhere above the 400 watt mark, but not much above it how how do you find though because how do you find those extra 40 watts because you're going into this you know it coming into this year you're an and in, one of the fittest people on the planet that's clear to, that's every cyclist is is one of the fittest you know at your level of the sport one of the fittest people on the planet how do you squeeze out an extra was it nine percent on top of that on top of my last attempt yeah effectively if you're going from 360 watts free ride anymore it's a fresh <laughs> So effectively, you've always had that 400 watts in you. That's what you're saying. It's always been... It's yeah, always, I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I had that. I, I had that back in 2015. Um, and that would have, with that setup, translated into something that would have made life a little more difficult for Wiggins. But it's that, you know, it's, a, it's an hour. It's, it's not like a time trial where if you overcook it in the first 20 minutes, you can, you can knock it back a bit and bring yourself back like we saw with Bobridge. once you go over once you go into the red you don't come out of that and you don't recover from that either so you you have to be so careful and respectful and i think 
you know, like the, the famous one is Eddie Merckx and how he described the hour record. But what a lot of people don't fully understand the hour with knowing that Eddie went for like the 5K, 10K and 20K world records at the same time. It's a guy that went all out and then hung on, which is a terrible way to ride an hour record. Um, but that's, and that's, that's probably why everything except for the first three laps for him would have been absolute hell. Um, but if you pace it, if you pace it to do an hour rather than to sort of go out hard and hang on, then it becomes a much more manageable experience. I think. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you were saying about uh, leaving, not leaving it on all on the track in 2015, having more to give um, and just, you know, lots of support from Movistar. I think everything was far too easy for you, Alex, because you're just pointing to Merckx there. I think he did it outside in Mexico City and yeah. it rained loads and they thought, actually, just going to have to go home. And yeah. then Colnago did his bike and apparently Merckx was asking him to change his handlebars five minutes before he kind of went on, as it were. Um, and I remember we did a, an interview with him and asked him about it and he was like, I've just never been the same. He was like, I was never the same rider when I got off that bike. You know, he like kind of carried off <laughs> in the riding position. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that you know he's you know he's going for other records in the meantime. Um, and although that is a crazy way of doing it, would you consider something similar like that just to kind of change the game a little bit and just go one better than no? <laughs> not he's shaking his head, not at all. I don't. No, no. there is. Well, there also is no. Um, there is no. Those records that Merckx took, there's no significance to them in modern day cycling. Um, there must have been a big thing back then, but there is I mean, no one. No one even knows who holds the. It's probably Merckx that still holds the 20k record because it's just not something that's done. I was going to say, although one record that I did see come up the other day, and I was like, that's something that Alex Dowsett could do. Was that hundred mile record? Yeah, I was like, because yeah, it was from was... like Norwich to Milton Keynes. I was like. Stephen around the corner for from him. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, actually, I saw that. I and like, you're used to riding on dual carriageways as well. I'm like, <laughs> I could just go and do that. Um, and the hardest thing would be to know where I'm going. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that looked that looked like fun. Um, hats off to the guy because what I've, what we found out with the hour record is any kind of record attempt, uh, more than half of it is in the planning and getting it together. Um that's arguably the more most difficult part. Once you're on that start line, then it's all you have to do is pedal. And once you're on that start line wearing those incredible shoes that I saw in one of your videos, where'd you get those from? So they're like they just look like a single piece of carbon that someone has wrapped around your foot <laughs> and uh then just glued there pretty much permanently. Are you um, wearing them now? No, they're uh they're the <laughs> Team G B uh track shoes. Ah, oh, the kind of secret squirrel club numbers. Yeah. yeah. Oh nice. If you do, if you do enough digging on the internet, you'll be able to find it. Did you? Had you like? How far had you come around with Kit then? Because I know I remember seeing in the video you working with Doctor Hutch with some positioning stuff. So how, for instance, did you finalise your bike for the record? Your because I knew you was going to you was going to wear a a skin suit um, that was sort of used to like dedicated to haemophilia, uh, the the blood condition that you, you suffer with and stuff like that rather than wear, riding like factor team kit and um because we were me and james were actually discussing before this we don't know if factor actually we've never seen a factor track bike so we were like are they just going to give him a cut and shut or we, we were scratching our heads no i mean the the bike 
bike was going to be a track specific bike. I mean, as long as it was one of the quick ones, it didn't really, we had a few options to play with. Uh, yeah, there's a few at the top of the sort of train on the track, but they're all as fast as each other. So, and then there's a couple of like standout bikes, like the, um, the Hope Lotus, which I wouldn't have been on. And the Malaysians make a pretty fast track bike of their own as well, which I wouldn't have been on either. So, but sort of, you step down one run from them and there's quite a few bikes that are in the, in the mix. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, the biggest, the biggest things we looked at, biggest things we changed actually from last time is position more than anything. I was going to mention this actually, because you're not on a Canyon anymore. So you would definitely have been changing that up. It's more actually the TT work I've done with GB. Um, we've changed up the position right. a lot. Um, elbows have come much more, much narrower. I'm a little bit lower. My head positions changed significantly. So that's given me quite a significant gain. Yeah. And then the other big, the other big changes actually were overshoes, just the fact that they're allowed now, like Victor and uh, Bradley. And when I did it last were not, weren't allowed overshoes, but that rule has changed. But we had, we all had slip. I had Bont zeros for my last attempt. Victor had some slippery shoes, Wiggins. Uh, he, I think he used the gyro ones with the laces. He he did. He went style over substance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, yeah. he substituted some watts out. Classic. <laughs> so overshoes and then just skin suit technology. But that said, the Endura skin suit. No, beg your pardon. The Endura made a very fast skin suit after I did the hour record. That that got banned immediately. That. Yeah. Um, well, not immediately. I used it for two years. Quite oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Well, um, well, it was with um, the Drag Zero, Drag to Zero yeah. guys, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But the suit, that wasn't available when I, in 2015. So I had a suit just with standard kind of ribbed arms on it. Um, so the gains we found in the suit were significant, which is good. The gains in the overshoes were quite significant. Uh, had a bit of freedom on helmet choice. Uh, that we, we hadn't really finalised on whether it would be the gyro, the pop, or or something else. But they're all there's a match for muchness there. Actually, they're not quite like the pop tempo is a real funny helmet because it's it, when it's good, it's extremely good. But if you start moving your head around, it becomes terrible quite quickly. The one that looks like a it looks like a bit like a manta ray, doesn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. Like you're under the ocean. One. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can. You we clocked a 25 watt loss from its best to its worst if you were to lift the tail a little bit oh wow you're talking like just sort of having a look at your garmin kind of head movement but that's but that's quite interesting because you talk about the then that 40 watts we were talking about is already getting eaten away from the fact that you've got a set of overshoes you've got a better helmet your position's changed so actually you've already knocked off potentially 50% of those watts in the fact that you're just riding a faster setup, yeah, which is m massive. And then knowing as well that you're like, oh, I can push that watts. It's quite interesting that when you look at it that way, how much tech has actually come on since 2015 yeah. when you did it the first time. And then there's like tire rolling resistance, drivetrain optimization, all of that has moved on as well. Um, because you, you didn't use the narrow crank arm as well when you did it the first time. It's just a normal Campag. Yeah, a power so, to max one back then. Yes, yeah. So yeah. even now you've got the like super slick all carbon. Yeah, one. So on the um, 
bolts sort of holding the wheels in as well, just normal like track bolts, not mm. like fluff Allen key bolts. Uh, oh, that, I mean, just in the tech, you've already you've already made it I've made them uh, what's up, Ali. Yeah, a, a normal bar and arm pad on the tri bars as well. I wasn't even custom molded. So this this latest hour record it's worth mentioning because this latest hour record, as you said, wasn't so much the team; it was yourself. But you wanted to do it for something in particular, which is you wanted to raise a more awareness around haemophilia. Something we've discussed before about, which is the the sort of rare blood condition that you suffer from. So, what what was what was your aims through doing this hour record in terms of haemophilia? I guess haemophilia has come such a long way in a relatively short space of time. And the biggest problems in the UK now are inactivity and obesity. Just through like that, inactivity is something that you'd have pushed. A hemophiliac into like 30 years ago um and then it's a bit of a gray area since then because we're sort of heading into new new territory it was using using that my platform and using the platform of the hour record to really showcase um hemophilia and what we are what we're capable of now um and i thought it was a really important message to send above above all because also then like, even there would it still even if i was to fail um and not break the record there would still be a very positive message to come out of it um and that is like still not avoiding the fear of failing but still giving it a go like i said before it would have been so easy to have just not done it um always try and help put haemophilia a bit more on the map because it's, it is a rare condition. There's a lot of rare conditions that don't see the light of day because they are rare, but collectively they're actually very significant in the world. You know, haemophilia is one of the lucky ones that has access to effective treatment that enables us to lead a, a normal life, which is kind of the important thing. It's not about leading an extraordinary life like I do, but we can use my example to say to parents that, we could like their kids can lead a normal life and i'm gonna come across as like i really have just done this internet research <laughs> for, in terms of how hemophilia works but it's like most people are familiar with it it's um uh lack of kind of blood clotting or coagulation uh if you if you cut yourself and bruising easily that kind of thing but something that stuck out to me and, and this came across in your vlog is it's a uh it's a glycoprotein right that's missing from a chain it's number eight. They call it stage eight. And that is just like, isn't that weird that you won stage eight this year? Yeah, twice, because you you will not remember this, but way, way back I interviewed you um, on the top of a London bus at the London Nocturne. Um, and you had just won uh, the time trial, stage eight in the Giro d'Italia, uh, 2013. Seven years later, <laughs> there you are, winning at the Giro stage eight again. When you're crossing the line this time around, were you like... Bloody hell! This is a bit, <laughs> a bit, a bit familiar and a bit strange. And did other people remark upon it? Yeah, yeah, didn't. Um, so we sort of discovered it afterward. Well, made the link afterwards. Um, and also, I mean, because in the haemophilia community, that the, it's the clotting, the clotting protein that we're missing, referred to as factor eight. I'm riding a factor bike now as well, which um, is only a joke me and my my consultant get, but. Yeah, we have a good laugh about it. Um, 
yeah, it's kind of coincidental, I guess. Um, whether there's you know more to it on a deeper level, I don't know. Start getting very um, spiritual, I guess, with that. But. Yeah, I was going to say, are you superstitious in any way? And is there going to be some number numeral eight on your bike, or, or are you superstitious in general? Do you have like little rituals that you? Uh, I mean, I did Tour de France. I didn't think stage eight there, so yeah, I would have been lucky to finish stage eight during the tour last year. So, <laughs> so how was um how was that Giro? Because it's worth talking. To, it's worth mentioning because not only you won a road stage, it was an incredible race for you to for that for that and watching you you win that stage was really emotional. Um, and I remember you remarking on when it happened that it was almost more important for you winning that than it has been any of your time trial victories because it was just a, a bigger thing for bigger thing for you. And you were, you know, you're not now, you were trying to find a contract at the time you had uncertainty about next year and that you must still be just like ear to ear brimming about that win because a, a grand tour stage wins an incredible achievement anyway. Like, but it just seemed like it meant a, a massive deal when you did it it really did it was um you know it was emotional it was because there's never any planning around that like as far as i was concerned that was a rest day like, breakaway was probably going to stick um, and we'd ride easy to the finish and then um but we had a plan on the team bus to all sort of get stuck in and have a go and getting in the break and remember nathan has when I went with him, he swung off. I kept going. Uh, I think then he, had really, I spoke to him afterwards. He said he knew quite quickly he had bad legs, so he didn't um, he didn't continue. And then joined by a couple of good guys and kept the pressure on. And Matthias was there. And then like we were in the breakaway, and it was there was quite funny because it's like oh, there's two of us. So on one hand, like the positive was that there was two of us and. Yeah, we had an advantage there. The downside is I knew all the other riders, except for the Androni fella. And I knew we were the two worst climbers in that group as well. And we did have that 10K climb to get to. I was like, if these Joe Roscoff and uh, Matt Holmes and Puccio decide to light it up up that 10K climb, there's not going to be a great deal Matthias and I can do about it. Um, we're very pretty smart. Um, and we rode together. And then I think 50K to go, we had a little chat. It's like, how do you want to win this? And Matthias said he'd be quite happy to take everyone to a sprint. And I said I'd be very unhappy to go to a sprint and I needed to get rid of everyone to stand a chance of winning it. So, yeah, and then we had Nicky in our ears as well. And and I think in the back of my mind, I like, throughout that day, I was like, I feel good. Um, I, I'm on a good day. I, I've got all the aero kit possible. On. I've given myself every chance today. Um, there's no reason why I can't win this and I actually think I can win this and then we went up that climb that first time and like Matthias was dropped and then I was dropped afterwards and I was like oh actually maybe I can't win this we just committed as hard as we could rode back and then immediately I led or Matthias led to a corner I sort of let him get a gap everyone else panicked and jumped to him and then I sort of Nikki on the radio has said Alex like you need to go now and a very pitiful, mild acceleration that nobody responded to in the saddle, I think, and got going. And then 
yeah, it was crazy. I got real aerodynamic because I was like, I need to get myself a gap before we hit the bottom of this climb and it needs to be a significant one. So I got um, real low on the front um, and didn't look at my watts or anything. I was just riding, a, riding completely on feel and then just heard the gap keep going out. I remember thinking, I was like, what are they doing? Like, why are they, why are they giving a rider like me a gap like this? Like on terrain like this. So as long as I've got a buffer over the climb, like on the flat, I knew they were going. They would struggle. That's what they said on the commentary as well. Like that's the classic thing. But it was said is when a time trialist goes, they're like, "Oh, you don't want to give him. If you give him that, you won't get him back." That's exactly what they say every time as well. <laughs> but I was also like, these are three strong guys, um, and if they're working really well together, they stand a good chance of taking me back because it's just three versus one. Um, yeah, didn't got over the the climb when even though I went quite slowly up it, the climb went quite quickly. Um, didn't take any risks on the corners, kept uh, plugging away, and yeah, it was two k to go. I think four k to go. It was like I think I'm going to do this, and then two k to go, they said, "Oh, you've got forty seconds still." I was like, "They they can't catch me now," and that was um, yeah, that was when I could really start enjoying it. Are you beginning to think at any point when you're getting close to the line, this is really going to help with negotiations for my contract next season? I did. It actually didn't cross my mind. Um, didn't cross my mind until it didn't cross my mind that it would help. It crossed my mind that I was like, this is awfully well timed to take a stage. The team's first ever Grand Tour stage as well, which is. I, ne I never considered that. I didn't. Um, I didn't think about the significance of of the win for the team until i was told afterwards um and uh yeah and then i was just i was like I, to be honest just winning a road race is was the biggest thing because there's an yeah I've, I've won i think 15 i've got 15 pro wins to my name and yeah one of them was in a road race and it was my very first win so um and, you know, time trials are great, but I think of those 15, I've crossed my hand, crossed the line with my hands in the air on a TT bike once, which was around in the national championships. Um, I like time trialing. I like winning. Um, but there's nothing quite like winning a road race. Yeah. Do, um, but for, from a, you know, a really experienced hands point of view, such as yourself, do you see the peloton, certain people kind of getting a bit crazier towards the end of the season? when they know contract, can you kind of tell whose contracts might nearly be up by the way they're behaving on a bike and the things they're willing to put themselves through? No, everyone's, there's certainly zero. And I heard the tour and the Vuelta were no different instead of it being, um, it was a series of one day races, 21 one day races rather than like a stage race. Um, like every day was epic. So uh, when they're, when they're, would be a selection that would make it to the finish. It'd have to be, I think stage eight, everyone was tired because we were like eight days deep and um, like no one really wanted to make the effort to chase. And it was a funny old finish that didn't really suit anyone specifically. So like a team then has to commit quite hard to pull in the break back for one person. And I don't like a sprinter wouldn't have been confident about getting over that climb. And it certainly wasn't a GC day. Yeah, there wasn't many of those breakaway days. Do you think riders have been racing differently 
because of lack of kind of honing race, you know, practicing racecraft this season. Because you know, I think it's maybe fair to say every season people go, oh look, you know, people are taking more risks. There's more crashes, but it did feel like there were some quite serious uh, incidents in a short space of time. It also felt more exciting. A lot of the ra- a lot of the racing this year as a, a fan seemed a lot more open and like a lot of riders were the cliche was they this could be their last race because of obviously the situation everyone so it did feel at times that like when you got your victory but just in all the three grand tours when attacks were going in they seemed like they were all out balls to the wall whereas sometimes when you watch a race and you see an attack you're like i can tell he's holding something back there because he like knows he's got two more weeks and that this is just going to bury him by doing this. I had that cross my mind. I was saying, like, is this my last Grand Tour? And certainly with the stage win, I was like, oh, I think this will keep me in the World Tour, but this still could be my last win. I'm going to really enjoy it. It was like my manager that kept telling me. I never got the sense that a lot of people were desperate within the Giro. I, To be honest, the overarching thing with the Giro is would, be, would we be racing tomorrow because of COVID? So uh, I wondered if the GC guys would race differently because of knowing that the race could, we could wake up one morning and be like, nah, that's it. I, everyone's going home. So I wondered if it would be more, more of an attacking race from the GC guys in the front on that basis, trying to be in the pink jersey rather than waiting to get it at the end. Um, but I think the Giro, like the stages were that long and that hard that there wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't a big attacking uh, race from the front. It was more of a attrition kind of race. Yeah. How was um? I wanted to know how you found the Stelvio. Like how how was? Did you get a chance to? Because there was no fans this year, and it was covered in snow. Did you at one point? Because it's a hard climb. But did you look around and go, "This is actually really beautiful." And I because I remember Nathan Haas. He tweeted afterwards, and he was like, "Today was really hard." But at one point, I had to remind myself, "Look, I'm." racing up the bloody Stelvio here. It's snowy, like it's covered in snow. This is amazing. And like, surely you, you must have at one point gone, actually, wow, look at this. This is, this isn't an office job. <laughs> but the, the, yeah, back to the last question, the most stressful, the only race where I think it, there was, everyone was real stressed through lack of racecraft was Strada Bianchi. The first, um, kind of 30 40k of that there's quite a few crashes a lot of near misses where everyone was i think back in the peloton and not knowing what they're doing stelvio was was really cool and i think because i was i was feeling quite good by that point as well as having um i'd had a i'd had a good race and i was getting better and better through it so i could really enjoy it without a fear of the time cut or is that is hard as well you don't I forget I've not I've not done it's the first time I've done that side of the Stelvio um I've done I've I've trained up the other side but not um the sort of the more famous side and I was in a small like a gruppetto split sort of riders that were just I think riders that are not used to being in the gruppetto and just started riding at their own or just riding at a pace that they didn't really need to so the gruppetto split in two and I sort of drifted forwards rather than backwards ended up with Brandley in the end and yeah, we kind of we rode up and I think we both quite enjoyed it. It's quite near Austria, so he had a lot of diehard fans that still came out. They were all uh, cheering him on, which was quite, they were quite boozed up and on their bikes, so um, it was quite entertaining. But yeah, it was really, 
it's quite spectacular. Like riding up mountains anyway, you just you see the top from afar and there's this element of like Christ, that's a long way away. That's a long way that way as well. Um and then you kind of, you kind of get there quite quick, but the Stelvio wasn't because you you can see every switchback. You see you've got like 10k to go and like 20 or 25 switchbacks still to do, and you can see every single one of them. You can see cars because you can't. There's no crowds. You could see all the team cars driving up, so you can see other little groups and sort of pods of riders sort of slowly working their way up. Um, yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it was, it was spectacular. What, what's the hardest climb that you've done in a race? Or what, what's the what's the climb that when it props up in the profile, you're just like shaking your head, being like, please, dear Lord, no. I think it, the climbs are like, they're relative to how terrible you feel. <laughs> um, yeah, if you're feeling good, they, they, the hardest climbs are still quite enjoyable. Um, when I say good, I mean like if I'm in a position where I'm comfortably ahead of the groupetto um or like one of the strongest in the groupetto because then you can just kind of enjoy it and then on the other hand i've been out the back of the groupetto really worried and then climbs just become horrible because you know you're losing more time you're fully tensed up you're panicking um i mean the zonkalan when we went up the zonkalan in the giro a couple of years ago i was just pretty mind blown that the climb could be that gradient for that tarmac long. could set like that I, it baffles me that uh, without sliding down somebody went up that on like a massive roller <laughs> like i learned pretty quickly what the italian word for push was <laughs> um that like that was mind-blowing that yeah it, this there is a climb that exists that is that steep for that length of time um and then uh, the fenestra colder fenestra on the day through me ripped the zero apart that was a day where I was really scared about the time cut. So I set myself a goal of um, getting over the first climb, which is more or less out the blocks with the front group. And it took 15 minutes of just about everything I had um, to make it, which I did. There was a groupetto of about 50 riders behind and I was still in the front group. I was like, this is great. And then hit the bottom of the Finestra and I was first dropped because I'd blown my doors hard. And stayed that way all the way to the top of it with Sasha Modelo on my wheel. And just, uh, it was horrible. But I think a little, I was being told that there was a good chance the Group SO wouldn't make time cut. So I was like, I've done the right thing here. But that was disgusting. <laughs> when something like that happens um, with uh, a stage like the Finestra, and you have got Froome blowing the race apart, as you say, and then with this year's Giro, you've got uh, Teo and um, Jai going into into Milan, both in pink with nothing to separate them. Is there a kind of buzz in the peloton? How much of it do you kind of, does everyone else in the race give a crap about it <laughs> kind of thing? Do you talk about it a lot? Are you like, oh, I wonder how this is going to pan out? Or you're a bit like, well, nothing really to do with me. No, we did. I was, I was very invested in the GC battle because it was, um, like, I know, I've known Teo for a long time. Um, and I sort of got to know Jai and we've got the same manager. So um, my manager was like, is there anything, anything you can help Jai with for the final TT? 
I actually rode some of the course. We did the course recon in the morning at a similar time. So, but they they have some web have things very dialed. So everything that I'd said that like, he already knew. Like Jai's really nice as well. Like, it's the day that he Stilvio day actually. He'd said um, we rode to the start together, and it was like, oh, like you'll be all right today, won't you? I was just like, mate, you could you could win the Giro today. Like, no need to ask me how my day is going to be. I'll be fine. And, and Teo as well. Like we'd had some good chats during the race, and he was um, he wasn't in the frame for the win until, and I think obviously quite a lot of his teammates have been winning as well. I almost almost said to him because he's turning up to the start of stages still on all like leg warmers and a jacket, like very much not invested in the race from a breakaway point of view. He was just there to get to the finish. I, I came that close, probably a bit confident after my stage win, saying, mate, four of your teammates have won their stages. And isn't it about you? It's time you did something. Quite glad I didn't say that to him. It was nice that it was a fair fight as well, because they both had leaders' jerseys on. And they both, like Teo does, doesn't have the fancy handlebars that Rowan and Ganner have got. I think in terms of as, as fair a fight as it was going to be, that was it. He's, he's just a cool kid from East London, so he just turns up and just just does it. It's like you, James. You're, you live in East London. You just you just turn up and do it, didn't you? Just turn up and do it. And to, uh, Alex, to your credit, in that interview, I dug it out that um, we did way back way, way back at the uh, Nocturne. I asked you who your top tip for the future was, and with a blink of an eye, I went, Terry Gagenhart, he's a good lad. Watch him. There you go. <laughs> so can you t- tell us tell us who's going to be uh, winning in the next seven years? Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Um, before we let you go, Alex, thanks for having your time. I uh, just want to get a quick word. So you've got a contract at Israel next year. Really exciting. But team is going to be pretty different because you've gone out and signed, you know, a seven-time Grand Tour winner in Chris Froome, yes. Seth Van Mark, uh, Michael Woods. So there's going to be a, math, a bit more of a spotlight on the team this next year. And even from, like, the British press who aren't cycling press because you've got Chris riding with you. Are you excited for that to have like a bit of spotlight on the team and something a bit different compared to this year where it was kind of still finding, you know, first year world tour. So it's all about finding feet and guys kind of just clicking. It's going to be different, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think, you know, my two years at Katusha, we, it was no secret. We were struggling. Um, yeah, I was in Movie Star, where I think for the five years I was there, at least three of the years we were top ranked team. Um, then went to Kudusha, where we were fighting to not be last ranked team. Israel, we've I think we finished last in the World Tour team standings this year as well. But it's not a surprise when you think like just where the team was in the Tour Down Under and where we were in the final two Grand Tours of the year was extremely different. Um, so I think in terms of the rate of progression, Israel's on a steep, a steep one, and it's, it's I, that's the bit I'm most excited about is being a part of a team that has the has the funds and has the desire to improve. Like we don't have a huge amount of equipment sponsors because we want to be able to optimize things, and you know the sponsors we do like Ceramic Speed and like this year gyro like they want to improve things within the team so i think and certainly when you've got a rider like Froomey there 
and also you know, Michael Woods with how stunning the second part of his season's been. You've got riders there that can really, and it's easy to ignore, well, it's not easy to ignore, but Dan Martin as well with how good, that's like, the best Grand Tour I think he's ever had in the world. So, um, yeah, it's a team that's improving rapidly and it's going to be fun. And I know from a time trial perspective, it's something that I will be more involved with helping the whole team rather than just kind of focusing on myself, which I'm really excited about. Alex Dowsett, ladies and gentlemen, um, a very willing interviewee guest, all things considered. I mean, he is anyway. You and I have both interviewed him before, Joe, as we um, alluded to. Uh, yeah, top bloke, but also in the midst of everything, he's got to be, he is very disappointed and he is also basically a bit ill. So thank you very much, Alex, for coming on. One thing I didn't, one thing I didn't ask him though that I wanted to was why his cat is called Albert. I was trying to wrap my brains. Is there a famous cyclist called Albert? We'll come back to that one. But, you know, he did tell us some uh, rather more interesting secrets about his training and also his kit. That was the thing that fascinated me most is that, he wouldn't tell us what bike he was going to ride. He is sponsored. And if we look at the history of the people that have done their records in the kind of modern age, which I suppose we would say was kicked off by Wiggins, he kind of re reignited cycling. Oh, no, it was Jens Voigt. Of it was, course, it was a, yeah. Jens no. Voigt was the of first course. one of course. who took the hour on a Trek bike. He sponsored manufacturer. He was riding for the Trek team, Trek factory team at the time. But I think, you're, as you were about to allude to, everyone who's done an hour record since Jens Voigt restarted the sort of hype around it has done it on their team's sort of stock sponsored stock bike. From Wiggins with a Pinarello, uh, Victor Campanarts on a Ridley last year when he set the current record, Dowsett, who rode a Canyon back in 2015. There hasn't been this sort of uh, penchant for going for the weird and wonderful that used to happen back in the days of Boardman and O'Brien, Indrain, and even further back uh, when the hour record was sort of a more readily attempted event. Well, well, this I mean, this was the thing. I mean, and and actually, weirdly, I think further, yeah, further back, I suppose you had you had the names of the riders on the frame. So you had Eddie Merckx's name on the frame of his uh, 1972 Maltini coloured bike built by Colnago, and you had. Moses' name on that crazy bike that I don't think he ever actually properly did an effort on, but with the massive, massive rear wheel. And inside the rear wheel were hollow tubes that were filled with a kind of oil. And the idea was that as, or was it? No, it's something to do with springs springs and magnets and ball bearings. And so as the wheels span up, the magnets would hold the ball bearings close to the hub. So the outer weight of the wheel was lighter. As the wheels span up, the centripetal force would pull the bearings down the tubes and push them into the rim, making the rim heavier to give it more inertial force. So this was this idea that he would somehow <laughs> get faster by going faster. It's that brilliant thing, isn't it? Like L-shaped cranks where you're like, what we need to do is increase the leverage by making an L in the crank. It's like, no, it's the same thing today. You only see people riding with um, sponsors, sponsors' bikes, which I find very strange that Factor wouldn't, he would, hasn't gone straight in there and said, factors sponsoring me because they're my team sponsor surely it's something that they want to be involved in mm. and i do question i do question whether or not he will do it now i'm not saying i don't believe he can or he wants to but maybe moving into next season if it sounds like it was a bit of a private enterprise that the team allowed him to do because you know 
racing's not on, let's get some publicity. Maybe when racing comes back, they'll sort of say, hmm, you've got to concentrate on this. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. What do you think to that? As I mean, as he pointed out, he, he sort of suggested that Israel's startup nation, his World Tour team, that they're the contracts and the deals that they have with manufacturers and kit suppliers isn't as traditional as other teams. So he even said that they have very few sponsors in order for riders to sort of optimise and maximise their um, their their performance. So Dowsett at the European Championships this year, when he was riding in Team GB colours, rode upon a specialised shiv time trial bike as opposed to the factor slice because he thought that was a faster bike. So I actually think rather than it being factor sort of saying, hang on a minute, we we sponsor you, so therefore you have to ride on one of our bikes, albeit it's not an actual track frame, so it may even be detrimental compared to using a, a specially made track bike. Um, I believe it's probably more Israel saying, look, we have a sponsorship with Factor, but it's actually quite loose. And there's no mentions of anyone having to any of our athletes having to use that bike in a in an hour record attempt because that's not you riding in the World Tour on on one of the races in Israel colours as such. So therefore, for us, we'd rather you go out and get the fastest bike you can and set the record rather than not set it and moan at us because you had to use a you know not disparaging factor. It's not their fault that they don't make a track bike. They don't need to. Um, very few, very few brands actually do. If you look at other big brands that are raced on a track, people like Pinarello, they're just kind of weird, sort of mismatches of existing time trial bikes and road bikes, rather than a sort of dedicated frame that you get from someone like Look or uh, Argon Eighteen now, or Hope the Hope Lotus bike that Team GB were set to be using in Tokyo at the Olympics. Yeah, so there's there's definitely that's that's a, a very good point. Um, but I would still say a, f- a frame doesn't. I mean, everything counts, but a frame isn't a crazy amount of uh, your aggregate drag, or in terms of you can't affect your aggregate drag by changing a frame near as much as you can by changing changing your skin suit. And actually, I'd argue that those bikes have been proven, even though they are kind of cut and shuts. The Pinarello is basically the back end of a fictitious track bike cross with their belied um time trial bike and the the bmc that run dennis road i think that may have actually been that's that's basically um a uh, a time machine you know the speed max was the one that dowsett rode for canyon and they just basically chopped off the back end put horizontal dropouts um and oh, just a tighter rear triangle and made it a track bike so those bikes can be super fast i very much doubt this guy listens but rob jatellis is the bloke that owns factor he's a very hands-on guy in the industry He's, some, he's an American who moved out to Asia to start working with bikes and be a liaison between American brands wanting to make bikes like Cervelo, like Scott, and owning his own factory that then made those bikes. Then he made moved into making just his own bikes. He called them Factor. So he has serious knowledge about bike manufacturing, has his own tools to do it with, so he could do it really, really quickly. And I would suggest now has a vested interest with one of his potential sponsored riders and the fact that he could create for Alex a custom super fast bike that would take elements of the factor slick and make it track worthy so yeah Rob um, if you're listening or anyone that knows Rob or anyone that knows someone that knows someone that knows Rob maybe have a little word in his ear and say this is a great opportunity um, as I'm sure Camp Agnolo sold Ghibli discs hand over fist once Dowsett rode them for Movistar best looking wheel set 
ever made, by the way, is the Gab- is the Ghibli disc. I can't move for Ghibli discs when I'm out riding at the weekend. They've got so they sold so many as on the back of Dowsett setting that record five years ago. If you ever go and see Campagnolo, get them to show you the guy that does Ghibli discs. There's only one bloke, Sir John Ghibli. Sir John Ghibli, and he tunes he tunes because they are they're called lenticular wheels, so they do have spokes of a, a to a degree. It's kind mm. of embedded in the carbon, and he tunes the wheels by flicking it and just listening to the sound. That's it. That's perfect. He's got he look, but he looks like he was at some point in time he was a pirate that now wears spectacles and deals with carbon fibre. That sounds... I mean, I don't want my wheels made by anyone who doesn't look like a pirate and flicks carbon to tune the spokes. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, But on that, I think we should maybe end the episode um, because it was a good one and we don't want to keep you any longer. Um, We... Yeah, I've got places to go. We've both got places to go. As ever, leave us a comment review subscribe share with some of your new friends who have just got into cycling or the old ones who love cycling but are yet to listen to the podcast uh the next episode in two weeks um what's it going to be on james the next episode in two weeks well we're just discussing that won't we joseph so we reckon it's going to be because we've got quite a few stacking up uh and some exciting ones in the new year but two weeks time will be marcus leach who is just an all-round pretty awesome cyclist that takes on some incredible things like Everesting, um, but Everesting on gravel, and then Everesting on gravel twice, and cycling 20,000 kilometres around the world. And for Cyclist Magazine, if uh, any of the listeners are also readers, they'll have seen his work. He's currently riding, or was riding over the summer, from uh, John O'Groats to Land's End in the scenic route, so taking on some of Britain's most picturesque and also very tough climb so he's we're spe- speaking to him about body transformations and being a 95 kilo rider that's summiting everest in uh how long it took him 17 hours and, and riding didn't he ride in peru which is all at four thousand meters above sea level he's a he's a pretty he's an amazing guy he's an interesting guy he's got loads of anecdotes i found him very inspiring i did as well i think you'll be inspired too listeners he's a he's an inspiring bloke he did make me want to go and ride and then Boris sort of came along and said, no, you shouldn't go riding, everybody. So keep your ears out for that one. But in the meantime, uh, stay safe, have, uh, and we'll see you again in two weeks' time. And James, I'll see you then too. I hope so. I hope you don't get um, sucked into the swale odyssey. (laughs) So do I. Fingers crossed.